Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Nancy Donahue, who saw great success in the 1980s as a model alongside the likes of Kim Alexis, Carol Alt, and Paulina Poroskova. Her image has graced the covers of Mademoiselle Vogue and countless other magazines. In spite of the perceived glamour of her storied career, she battled addictions that would land her in rehab. Hear her candidly recount the many highs and lows of her career and life, each setback teaching her some of life's most important and invaluable lessons. Please welcome Nancy Donahue. Welcome, Nancy. I always start the show off by asking one question. And the question is, was there an event in your life that was challenging either personally or professionally that might have redirected the course of your life? I started modeling in the 80s and got into the fast-paced world of modeling here in New York City. I was 19, and I moved to New York City from Lowell, Massachusetts on my own. Went into the fast-paced world of modeling here in New York in the 80s, and along with that came Studio 54 and lots of things that go along with Studio 54, such as drugs, cocaine. I'll just put it out there. So I unfortunately got into that a little bit too much for everyone's liking. And my parents came down and just took me out of here and popped me into a uh, rehab. So I would have to say that was one thing that has totally changed my life and was very impactful on my life. And quite frankly, when my son was in boarding school, I had to tell him about that, which was very difficult for us both. We both, you know, had tears. Yeah, it was pretty emotional. And I'm emotional now as we're talking about it. I had to let him know, you know, that you have to be careful with both drugs and alcohol. And they run in our family, that sort of addiction type thing, and that he had to be super careful. And I think the talk that day or that night at dinner really influenced him a lot because he's really such a wonderful young man and very responsible. But it wasn't an easy time. So when you were in rehab, how old were you? Oh, I was probably 21 or 22 the first time I had to go in twice, 30 days each. And you were still modeling. And then I'm assuming you continued to model after you got out. Yeah, I did. But, you know, I finally came to realize I didn't want to be that person anymore. So I can't attribute me getting sober to the rehab. I hit my bottom. I just said, I'm done. Because when you're doing drugs and alcohol and addiction type circumstance, you tend to lie. Your whole life is a lie. So I had to, and I was sick of it because one lie runs into the other lie and the other lie and the other lie. And, you know, you don't know where you left off. And I was tired, tired of that, tired of being that kind of outcast in my family. And I wanted to be a normal person. So if you can call me normal now, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is my normal. <laughs> I love it. So when you were modeling at the height, how many covers do you think you did? I haven't really counted. I did over 15 Mademoiselle covers. I did over 15 or 20 self covers. I did, I think, six American Vogue covers. And then I did British Vogue covers, German Vogue, French Vogue covers, and Italian Bazaar. You know, I didn't even realize what a big deal it was to be on a cover. I thought, you know, Kim Alexis and Carol Alt have many more covers than I did, but I was um, self and Mademoiselle, you know, they liked me quite a bit and um, I did a lot for them. So it was pretty funny. I didn't even realize what was happening. <laughs> Some people who have addiction issues find that the addiction springs from a need to kind of self-medicate. And that need to self-medicate can be drawn to perhaps anxiety disorders or depression. So was there an aspect of that that could be applied to your own story with addiction? You know what? It all started back, Juliana, when I was in high school. Not to blame anybody, but my mom was always on a diet. So I thought I had to be on a diet. So we removed the cheese from my sandwiches. And I got into this weird anorexic phase in high school. And then it went into college. And then I became bulimic in college and anorexic. And then I moved to New York and discovered cocaine, which, of course, made you super thin, even though I didn't need to lose weight. So to answer your question, I think it all stemmed from that. And I'm one of 11 kids. You know, you get lost in the path. What number are you? I'm number four. Oh, wow. You know, you kind of get lost and I guess it may be attention seeking type of thing. Who knows? I mean, I didn't know, you know, it could have been that as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, who knows what was going on in my mind back then? You know, I was really shy, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) I was horrific. (laughs) I know you don't believe me. I don't know. My shyness, I broke out of that, though, didn't I? Yes, you did. So. People who have addiction and also eating disorder issues probably have a lifetime where they have to kind of manage either the addiction or the eating disorder. So do you find yourself still having that part of the brain that you have to talk down if you're feeling a certain way about the way you look or a certain way about eating or more importantly, if you feel as though if you're drinking, it's starting to get a little out of control. Let's start with the eating. The eating, I don't think about at all. I mean, I eat whatever I want when I want, as you know. And as for the drinking, I think I told you two years ago, it was pre-COVID. My sister and I said, you know, let's not drink. And I said, okay, we'll do six months. So we just basically stopped drinking. You know, it was super easy. I mean, I thought it was going to be difficult because I was in a a very unhappy marriage, and I was medicating with alcohol. I didn't like that. I didn't like where I was. And then when I moved back to New York, I was um, I was super happy again. And I said, sure, I'll do it with you. And so since then, we haven't drank. I mean, here and there, I'll have a glass of champagne to celebrate something, but I don't drink every day, and I love it. And I'm in control of it, and it feels really good. And, you know, at the end of five o'clock, I used to, the bell would go off in my head. Oh, my God, it's five o'clock. You need to have a drink. And I'm like, don't want it anymore. And then being in the real estate world, 
you have to really focus. You can't be hungover. You can't be drunk when you're dealing with lots of money and clients and, you know, listings and buyers, sellers. You have to be right on. I mean, you cannot be fuzzy at all. There's right. too much at stake. So was there another crisis? I know you said there were a number uh, aside from the addiction issue. Was there another crisis where you had a moment where you were at the fork in the road and if you had gone one way, your life might be different than if you had gone the other way? Well, I won't necessarily say this was a crisis. You know, I've had several careers in my lifetime, as you know. Can you tell us all about them? <laughs> yeah, of course. So first of all, when did you stop modeling? I mean, I know you still work, but I mean, when did you mentally say I'm done as that being my main profession? So when I moved to Massachusetts in the 90s, there was no modeling in Boston. So I had to think of something else to do. You know, I just couldn't depend on that. So, you know, my mother loved to cook and I went to culinary school and I became a pastry chef for a catering company, getting $8 an hour. Finally, I moved it up to $16 an hour, which I thought was incredible. Still, that wasn't enough money. So I became a personal trainer. So I was a trainer from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., drove George to school. Then I was a pastry chef as soon as I dropped him off until the time I picked him up. And then I went around and around and around, did that for years, over 10 years. Then I became a fitness director at a high-end country club in Massachusetts. And from that, I met um, one of my colleagues or my ex-business partner, and we started Belcor. So to the point to your question, this was a very, you know, starting your own business is very scary and you're really going out on a limb. So I could say that's one thing. I probably wish I hadn't put as much time, effort and money into that. I wish I had not done it, quite honestly. And, you know, although it was really fun and interesting to work with mechanical and industrial engineers, I invented a product that I sold worldwide to all the top stores. I think that was incredible and fabulous. If I had made my money back, it would be even better, but I didn't. I mean, I've come to terms with it, but, you know, I think that's a 10 years of my life. I could have been in real estate and making money. <laughs> Can we go back to when you were obviously raising George, your son, yeah. and working two jobs? Were there ever moments where you just thought, oh, I just can't do this anymore? No, I never thought that because, uh, you know, as a mother, you can't think that way. You know, as tired as you are, you have somebody to raise, my son to raise, and had to put food in his mouth and show him this is the way... I remember doing catering gigs and we had just moved to our, our little apartment. I moved out of my mother's house because he turned 12 or 13 and I would have to do a catering gig at night. And he was 12 and you were allowed to leave him alone at 12. And I would just say, look, I'll be home at 10. And I had to explain this is what I have to do in order for us to survive. So while you were doing catering work and teaching, did you have odd moments where people would recognize you? To this day, people still do. It is odd. And, you know, they say, oh, you're the model. I'm like, no, I'm a chef. And then I'd be training. Oh, you're that model. And I'm like, well, I'm a trainer. Even in the real estate world, someone the other day just had Googled me and said, oh, my God, you're a model. I didn't realize you were a model. I'm like, no, I'm a real estate agent. 
You know what? It's like a card that you can always pull out of your pocket at certain times. Do I want to continue to do that? No, but it is what it is. What am I going to do? It was a job I did and it was very recognizable and people still love that. So I'll just deal with it. One of the things that I would imagine as a model where your physical appearance is being judged all the time and assess all the time by photographers, by designers. How did you not let that experience just completely wear down your self-esteem? That's a tough question. You can't let it wear down your self-esteem because the whole bit about the modeling world is what's on the outside, right? You would go to casting after casting after casting. You know, you get turned down, you get turned down, you get picked up, you get turned down. It's just part of the game. And you actually learn to have a very thick skin. So I never even thought twice about it, quite frankly. You had to have a thick skin because you're not everybody's choice. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I think it's fine. There's a zillion other people out there that are beautiful and whatever. I don't know. I have been like that since 19. You get turned down, you you get put on a cover, you get ixnayed. It's part of the game. In that profession where you're always being judged and your ability to be resilient in the face of rejection or criticism, and you said that you had to develop thick skin, did you already have the thick skin or did that really come as a result of being in that business? I think it's um, a little bit of both because growing up with one of 11, you had to be, we were really tough. And, you know, my parents were never the type that, oh, you're so gorgeous or you're so handsome. It was, there was none of that, none of that, none of that. And even when I was a model, none of that came out. So I know you've had lived 500 lives in one, and you are somebody that I think about when I think about the genesis of this podcast and this show. Was there another moment, another inflection point in your life where something might have occurred and you found yourself redirecting your life again? Well, Juliana, I've redirected my life like five times. So, I mean, you know, when I had to let go of Belcor, I had to redirect to real estate. You know, starting from scratch sucks. It's not my favorite thing to do, being the new kid on the block, although now I've been doing it for two years plus, and I see all the new ones, the real estate salespeople coming in. I'm like, I'm glad I'm not there anymore because it sucks to start over again. And this is my last hurrah. (laughs) I I am not doing another career, but now I'm well into it and I feel great and, you know, really savvy and smart and I love it. So you talked about this being another inflection point and having to pivot and redirect your career. Can you provide some advice for women? You're at an age where most people would not expect somebody to pivot and start a whole new career, which is why you're remarkable. Given your experience and your ability to do that, could you offer advice for women who are perhaps now facing the time in their life where they no longer have to raise a family, but they hadn't kept up a career. And they're kind of facing this moment of an existential crisis of who am I? What am I? What do I do for the rest of my life? Can you offer them some advice? 
Well, it's funny. I had this conversation with my brother yesterday who's in real estate and he's, uh, I'm 63. So I think he's 65. He's going into wind down mode as we talked yesterday and I'm in wind up mode. So, you know, he's uh, going into retirement and we had this conversation. And so my advice is, you know, you have to just figure out something that you love or passionate about. You have to, like I said, you have to be the new kid on the block and just take a step forward, even if it's for just something you love to do. Because quite frankly, 63, I feel like I'm 25. You know, it's like 60s are still young and you can still do things. You shouldn't be afraid to try something new. I've tried everything new and I just dove in just tell yourself you can do it. You know, you have to have the strength and the passion behind it. Find out what you love to do and just go for it. Do it. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you haven't worked or you are working, you just have to take a step and do it. So I have friends who are actors and some who had achieved a certain amount of success. And when their acting lives kind of came to an end, what I always sense is this kind of an inner battle because they're so recognizable on the one hand. It's not as though they can go and work at Trader Joe's, although we now know some of them have done that. But it's that ability to put aside your ego, knowing that you're probably going to be recognized and then recognize doing something that's so far removed and by society's perception, perhaps a step down from what you had been doing before. Going from modeling, making 2,500 to five grand a day to being a chef for $8 an hour. You know, you just got to suck it up. It's just like, this is reality, folks. So, you know, yes, it was hard. Thankfully, I had some savings, you know, but I remember going to my boss at the catering. I'm like, can I get a dollar more an hour and dollar more an hour? But you have to suck it up. And on one hand, I wouldn't even say it was less menial. If anything, I was using my creativity being a chef. And I was very excited about that. I did think about the money, of course, but I was like, this is such a cool job. And I'm going to ask, I ask this question of everybody because I'm always trying to get to and distill for myself what it is that enables one person to move forward, even in the face of tremendous loss or crisis and another to not. So do you think that it's more of your nature that you pushed forward and made all of these changes and basically reimagine your life? It feels like every 10 years, or was it nurture or both? I was raised to work hard and that's the only thing I knew. I mean, I watched my dad raise 11 kids and work his butt off. My mother did whatever she could to save money. And I mean, they were quite well off now. But as kids, you know, she would run to different shops to find the cheapest bread and things like that. No, I think it's just how I was brought up. Now that you are in your 60s, how are you facing just the aging process? Because I feel like you're aging really with a certain amount of grace. And that's a hard thing to do, especially when part of your professional career was based on your physical appearance. So if you could take the wisdom of Nancy today and go back in time to the Nancy of 19 who started modeling, how differently do you think your modeling career would have turned out? 
Well, no, it would have been a whole different story, of course. You know, we always want to use our wisdom from this age and apply it to our younger self. One time, the William Morris Agency came to me, which is a huge agency, when I was probably 20, 21, and they said, you know, we want to take you on. And these are the people that took on Christy Brinkley and made her Christy Brinkley. And Nancy, in her young, naive, 21-year-old, 20-year-old self, said, oh, no, I'm all set. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) But to that point, would I want to be what Christy Brinkley is today? Not really. Do Mm -hmm. I love all the careers I've done? Absolutely. I've learned so much. I don't want to be in front of the camera my whole life. There's other things in life. There's things to learn, to do. I am actually quite happy with the way I turned out. And that's one thing that I, and I hope people can really take away your sense of joy and hopefulness that is just, I think, at your core, at your essence. I mean, do you ever have days where you wake up and you just think, crap, I just can't do this anymore? Or do you wake up and even if it's a hard day, you're able to find the joy. This is a super challenging job, but when I'm working and moving, it makes me feel better. Are there tough days? Certainly. There are very tough days, but you know what? As you do, I get through it by doing yoga and I, I swim every morning. I swim for an hour this morning before I start work to manage my day, to manage my anxiety and things like that. So just to go back. So there would not be one thing that you could change if you could go back to that period. I would have loved to have not been addicted to drugs. <laughs> that would have been ace. That's probably the biggest thing I would have changed, of course. That was like 10 years out of my life. It was terrible. And I think about that a lot, but you know, I can't hang on to that. I got to let it go. You know, right. move on. You know, you can't hang on to Oh, I should have, could have, would have, you know, you can't, you've got to move forward. And then more importantly, how did you make your way to real estate? I mean, I think it's just an incredible fit for you with your personality and your ability to connect with people. But how did you find your way to real estate after the Belcor business had shut down? You know, I have have a few friends of mine that are in the business, and I was on a yoga retreat, actually, in Bordeaux with Kylie, a very good friend of mine, Veronica, said to me, you know, Nancy, you should be in sales. You know, she said, you have just this thing about, you know, we were sitting and talking, and she told me that in June. And then another friend in real estate, you know, Belcourt was definitely winding down, and, you know, there was not much to do. And another friend of mine in real estate said, why don't you do real estate? I think it was August a couple of years ago. I said, screw it. I'm going to do real estate. So I went to the NYREI school and I, of course, I'm an overachiever. So I had to get all the classes done within like stupid amount of time and take this incredibly hard test. And then I'm like, hit the ground running. Like I found Keller Williams. I'm like, that's where I want to be. And So can you tell the audience that you're, Obviously based in New York, but you are with Keller Williams. I'm with Keller Williams, New York City. Yep, we're in right on Park Avenue here. So if you could project five years from now, how do you think your life will look? Five years from now, I've already thought about that a lot because I'm a 
five-year ahead person. I will be retired in five years. You know, I love to travel. So maybe I'll do a few deals and stuff here and there, but I plan on traveling a lot and enjoying when I'm closer to 70 on. I don't want to be pounding the pavement at 70, for God's sake, no. (laughs) (laughs) So the last question I ask is, if you could find one song that would describe your life, what is the name of that song? Okay, so it has to be a song by Rod Stewart. So I am going to say Maggie May is probably my favorite song from him. And how does it resonate with you in terms of your own life? Because that was sort of me and my <laughs> Maggie was sort of me in my, in my early 20s and things, you know. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. You are, as I have told you before, you were the one of the first people I thought about when I came up with this project and that idea of women living a thousand lives in one. I feel right. as though you fully embody that. And I find you incredibly inspiring. And I think not just what you've done. I think for me, the inspiration comes from how you've done it and how you do it with so much grace and so much humor and so much humility. So, oh, no. Well, thank you. And Juliana, it's truly an honor to be here and to speak with you because I think what you're doing is just incredible. I love the whole series and I listen to most of them, but I'm excited that you're doing this podcast because I think then I'll really be able to listen to more of the people that you had on, which uh, I would really enjoy. Thank so you. So thank you to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.